Excuse me. Good morning, my relatives. It's Mark Charles. Today is Wednesday, July 19th, and I'm sitting down with my second cup of coffee. And I want to talk to you today about Arizona versus the Navajo Nation. This is the water rights case that the, was, uh, the opinion was released by the Supreme Court a few weeks ago. And I did a kind of a preview show of that uh, several weeks ago, but I wanted to do a more in-depth uh, show about it after having read the opinion. And I took some time over the weekend to read the opinion. So here I am uh, wanting to talk about this case. But before I begin, let me do like I always do and acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from what's now called uh, Washington, D.C. But these are the traditional lands of the Piscataway. And I want to honor the Piscataway as the host of the lands where I'm living. I want to thank the Piscataway for their stewardship of these lands. And I want to just state how humbled I am to be living on these lands today. So let me go ahead and see who's in on the chat here. Uh, Mary Myers, yep, they have been. Good morning. Thank you for joining. I see there's a few other people online. I want to I want to thank everybody for joining me this morning. Um, but yeah, I really do want to talk about this case, uh, the Supreme Court, um, Arizona versus the Navajo Nation. Um, I shared some articles about this a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to share that. I want to actually go more in depth this time into the opinion. Nina, thank you for joining. Good to see you. Uh, glad you're here. Shantina, thanks for joining. Uh, Dreaming Nirvana, Steve Wilson, oh, hey, my father, my father's online this morning. Good morning. Dad, good to see you. Thanks for joining from uh, New Mexico. But um, yeah, glad everyone could be here. So there's a lot of things I want to discuss about this case. For those of you who don't know about this case, if you just Google Navajo Nation water rights or Supreme Court Navajo Nation, you'll probably find uh, several articles about it. I can put a few more in the in the show notes afterwards. But um, the story is basically the Navajo Nation after our Treaty of 1868, um, uh, we interpreted that treaty to say that that treaty actually implies or states that the government is uh, responsible for helping us at least assess our water needs and to um, make sure that we have the adequate water we need for our reservation. And we've been trying any number of ways for the past several decades to try and persuade or compel the U.S. government to at least make an assessment of our needs. Um, this is because one of the major water sources running adjacent to our reservation is the uh, the Colorado River. And of course, you know, with the drought in the Southwest and the growth of Phoenix and all the other needs, both from California and Arizona upon that river, that leaves very little left for a lot of other needs. And the Navajo Nation is trying to get an assessment of what are our needs and what do we need to do to make sure that we meet our needs with water, and how does that fall under the terms of our treaty? Now, as you know, I lived on a reservation for 11 years, and I lived in a community for three of those years that did not have running water. Uh, we had no running water. We had to haul our water in from a, a well. Uh, the closest one was maybe a few miles away. The most convenient ones were probably 10 to 15 miles away. And, right, we had to haul our water. And this is not an uncommon way, even today, for many citizens of our Navajo Nation to live that way and to have to, have, to, have to haul their water in. 
And so I think to even ask the government, hey, can we have an assessment? Because we have 300,000 tribal members, close to 200,000 living on our reservation. Not only are we a food desert, but we're actually a desert. There's not much water. Needs have obviously changed in the past 150 years. And we need to have an assessment of what our needs are so that we can make sure we meet them. And also that we're still falling under the terms of the treaty that was signed in 1868. And so again, after several other ways of trying to, to get this assessment to take place, we finally went to the Supreme Court and that opinion came out uh, last month and it ruled against us. It, it ruled and said that the U.S. government does not have an obligation to assess our water needs under the Treaty of 1868. Um, and so I wanted, let me, first of all, let me share with you the article, or not the article, let me share with you the actual PDF um, of the Supreme Court case. So I'm going to put that up into the chat right here. Um, while I'm looking at the chat, who else is online? Mr. Phil Fox, Yatea Bina, uh, Nina, Mary, thank you all for joining this morning. Here is a link to the PDF of the opinion that was written. And then I'm also going to share uh, a link to the treaty. And this is on the Navajo Nation's website, and it's a link to the treaty that we signed with the U.S. government in 1868. And so um, I want to kind of go through some of this uh, treaty with you and are not the treaty, some of this opinion. And there's some really fascinating things going on with this opinion. So I'm actually going to share this on my screen. You can see it behind me, but it's, it's a little hard to read. So I'm going to share it up on my screen here and we're going to bring it up. Um, so, and let me make sure that I can read everything okay. But uh, in this opinion, written, and so the majority opinion, again, we have a very partisan Congress and a very partisan Supreme Court. Uh, we have judges appointed by Republican um, uh, presidents, and we have judges appointed by uh, Democratic presidents. And please note, I said appointed. They call it nominating, but because of the extreme partisanship of the Supreme Court, I think appointed is actually a much more accurate term for what happens with these judges, especially with what's happened in the past several years. And so the majority opinion was, was primarily of uh, conservative, right-leaning, Republican-appointed justices. Um, the only, one of the one of the holdouts was uh, Neil Gorsuch, who was a Trump appointee, but uh, he actually sided with the minority in this, and he wrote the dissenting opinion. But the majority opinion was written by none other than Brett Kavanaugh, um, and uh, we'll see some of his uh, work here. But in this opinion, and this, I'm just going to kind of walk you through the majority opinion of this case. It says the Navajos contend that the treaty requires the U.S. The United States to take affirmative steps to secure water for the Navajos. For example, by assessing the tribe's water needs, developing a plan to secure the needed water, and potentially building pipelines, um, pumps, wells, or other water infrastructure. It then goes on to state that the federal government owes judicially enforceable duties to tribes only to the extent 
it expressly accepts those responsibilities. So that's one of the things it says. It says, so the government, yes, it is does have enforceable duties to the tribe, but the only duties it has are the duties it expressly accepts or states that it has. Um, and then the, the opinion goes on to say, for example, the treaty required the United States to construct a number of buildings on the reservation, including schools, a chapel, a carpenter shop, a carpenter shop, and a blacksmith shop. And so this is one of the things that it says, and it, it says, yeah, this is, this is one of the requirements of the treaty. Um, and then it goes on and it says the 1868 treaty reserved necessary water to accomplish the purpose of the Navajo reservation. See Winters versus the United States, which was another case that went before the Supreme Court quite a while ago. Um, and it said, but the treaty did not require the United States to take affirmative steps to secure water for the tribe. We reversed the judgment of the U.S. Courts of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. So basically, again, what the majority said is it said um, we don't have an express obligation to go back and make this assessment. We are not responsible for creating infrastructure for you to have water on your reservation. And so therefore we are not going to rule in your favor. Um, and it was a, it was, it wasn't a very long opinion written by the majority. It was fairly succinct and it was quite repetitive. For example, the, the, um, the part written up above about the buildings, the schools, the carpenter shop, the chapel, that was repeated like five times in this opinion. Um, it's like, we're, you know, we don't have to build schools for you. We've already built these schools. And, you know, this is what it stated we had to do. We don't have to do things like build infrastructure for water and so on and so forth. And so it was a very simplistic and quite naive, naively written opinion. And this is just my assessment of reading it, right? The, 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 I very much got the feeling that uh, Justice Kavanaugh does not understand Native American history, doesn't really understand Native American law, obviously doesn't understand treaties, what's going on with treaties. And um, yeah, this was a pretty shoddy opinion, in, in my opinion. <laughs> um, just not very articulate, not well-reasoned and very, very simplistic in what it stated. Um, and I'm not the only one who felt that way. Uh, if, you, if you read on in the opinion, we have the dissenting opinion, which was written by Justice Neil Gorsuch. Now, Neil Gorsuch was, is probably the best mind on the Supreme Court regarding American Indian law. He is, um, he is really, has done a really good job of, uh, hold on just a second. He's done a really good job of, um, he's been on a lot of cases. He came out of the, the, the federal appeals, the federal courts in the, the Rocky Mountain region. He dealt with a lot of American Indian cases when he was there, and he is by far one of the best legal minds on the Supreme Court when it comes to American Indian law. And I have to admit, reading his opinion was actually kind of fun. Um, because, 
<laughs> if, if you want, if we can frame this in something more relatable to the rest of us, besides what we see the dynamics on the Supreme Court, if this was a, a law class, right, at a university, and there was a final, and it was on an essay, it was, it was an essay that was required um, about uh, this this American Indian law regarding treaties, and it had been uh, extensively researched and read about, and was um, you know uh, the, one of the final projects due at the end of the semester. Brett Kavanaugh's Justice Kavanaugh's opinion is like the uh, like the writing of I'm just going to say a frat <laughs> frat boy who woke up fairly hungover, forgot he had this assignment due grabbed the cliff notes to something about treaties on the way to class, read through them on the way there, and wrote something while he was sitting in class. And his very simplistic argument and the way that he argued for the, the values of the majority and not really dealing with the, the needs of the case, uh, he won the favor of most of his classmates. Right? That's, that's what happened. The dissenting opinion is essentially the professor of the class looking directly at Justice Kavanaugh and addressing the entire class and saying something to the effect of, had Brett even attempted to do even half of the reading that was required for this course, he would realize how completely out of touch and inadequate his response actually was. He starts, he says, understanding this lawsuit requires at least three, three pieces of context the court opinion neglects. It requires some understanding of the history that led to the Treaty of 1868 establishing the Navajo Reservation. It requires some insight into the discussions that surround the treaty. Finally, it requires an appreciation of the many steps Navajo took to avoid this litigation. So he's like, this. you have to understand the history, you have to understand the context, you have to understand what's already been done to make this happen. And then he goes in to give basically a lecture that even I would be proud of, except for a few points, regarding the history of the United States, of, of the U.S. So... Um, He goes in first about the history. And he says, and I'm just going to give you a few of the, of the points that he says regarding the history. He says, then, left the not-so-small matter of securing the Navajo's compliance. To that end, the federal government established a maelstrom of destruction on the tribe. Before all was said and done, the tribe had to be literally starved into surrender. He's talking about the, the securing of the Navajo people before the long walk. He says thousands of U.S. troops roamed the Navajo country, destroying everything the Navajo could use. Every field, storehouse, and hut was burned. The campaign, the campaign was brief, blunt, and when combined with a particularly difficult winter, very effective. The period of violence led to the long walk. In truth, it was not one walk, but many, over 53 separate incidents According to some, in each case, federal officers rounded up tribal members, herded them into columns, and marched them hundreds of miles from their homes. Many died en route, some shot by the soldiers. This was from the commission's report. As one Navajo later recounted, people were killed on the spot. Um, if they said they were tired or sick, or they stopped to help somebody. 
Those who survived wound up at a destination that surpassed their fears. Bosque Redondo was just what the officers had warned, a semi-arid, alkaline, um, uh, fuel-stingy, insect-infested environment. No surprise either that even the productive land yielded one disastrous crop failure after another. All told, the relocation proved a catastrophe for the Navajo people. 2,000 people died there in four years. Right, so he just goes in depth into the history of what happened to the writing, to the signing of this treaty in 1868. Now, I'm not going to go through his entire opinion, but I want to I want to share some of these things with you. And then he goes on, and he he addresses later he addresses what Brett and the majority thought they were answering, and he says today the court rejects a request the Navajo Nation never made. This case is not about compelling the federal government to take affirmative steps to secure water for the Navajos. Respectfully, the tribe, respectfully, the relief the tribe seeks is far more modest. Everyone agrees the Navajo received enforceable water rights by treaty. Everyone agrees the United States holds some, some of those water rights and trust on the tribe's behalf. And everyone agrees um, the extent of those rights has never been assessed. Adding those pieces together, the Navajo have simply asked they want the United States to identify the water rights um, it holds for them. This is all they're asking, he says. Had you done your reading, Brett, you would have realized what they were actually asking. He then goes on and he says, our duty, this court has repeatedly explained, lies in interpreting Indian treaties in a spirit which generously recognizes the full obligation of this nation. He goes on to say that with time, too, these interpretive insights have yielded some more concrete rules. First courts must give effect to the terms of treaties as the Indians themselves would have understood them. And then goes on to say that second, we have to gain a complete view of the tribe's understandings. Courts may and often must look beyond the written words into the larger context that frames the treaty. Begin. So he's making some fairly decent arguments here. And he does a really good job with it. However, and I want to read this next part carefully. Because as I was reading this opinion, right, as I was going over this, I was actually really excited about what he was saying and what he was talking about. And I thought it was really, really good. And I was reading this opinion with, again, a lot of excitement as he was literally schooling Brett Kavanaugh and the conservative judges on the history, the context, and the role of the court when it came to regards to Indian treaties. But then he went on to say, and let me, let me show that I'm going to put this back up on the screen. He said, begin with the governing legal principles. Under our constitution, all treaties made are the supreme law of the land. Congress can pass laws to implement those treaties and the executive branch can act in accordance with them.
but the judiciary also has an important role to play. The Constitution extends the judicial power to cases arising under treaties made or which shall be made. As a result, this court has recognized that tribes may sue to enforce rights found in treaties. He then goes on to state, what rights does a treaty secure? A treaty is essentially a contract between two sovereign nations. Now, if you know what I have talked about before regarding the McGird case, you know what I'm going to say here. I read that, and I'm like, hold on, Neil, because that is not at all what you said in the McGirt case, right? In the McGirt case in 2020, where McGirt was saying, hey, all of eastern Oklahoma is a reservation based on treaty, and I should have been tried in a federal court instead of a district court, and again, in that case, the, the majority actually ruled in favor of McGirt, and they said, yes, try our, the, the courts don't have the right to break treaties, and uh, the states don't have a right to break treaties. Therefore, yes, based on your interpretation and for judicial purposes, all of eastern Oklahoma is a reservation. It's exactly what they said. But then it went on, and if you remember, in my, in my writing, or in my lectures about this, one of the things that Brett, or that uh, um, they go on to say, Neil Gorsuch goes on to say regarding treaties, and I want to bring this up here for you to read it. He goes on in the McCurt case to argue, he says, to determine whether a tribe continues to hold a reservation, there is only one place we may look, the acts of Congress. This court, the Supreme Court, long ago held that the legislature wields significant constitutional authority when it comes to tribal relations, possessing even the authority to breach its own promises and treaties. He went on to state that only Congress can divest a reservation of its land and diminish its boundaries. So it's no matter how many other promises to a tribe the federal government has already broken, if Congress wishes to if Congress wishes to break the promise of a reservation, it must say so. History shows that Congress knows how to withdraw a reservation when it can muster the will. Disestablishment has never required any particular form of words, but it does require that Congress clearly express its intent to do so. So in the McGirt case, when Neil Gorsuch is writing the majority opinion, he is very clear, right? He's saying in front of Congress, tribes have no rights. Whenever Congress can muster the will and just state its intent, that's all it has to do in order to break a treaty. And even the Supreme Court is not going to hold it accountable. The courts have long ago agreed that the government can do this whenever it wants, and they're not going to stand in its way. And now, in this case, Arizona versus the Navajo Nation, Neil Gorsuch is writing the dissenting opinion, and now he's saying, according to our Constitution, treaties are the supreme law of the land, 
and treaties are understood to be between two sovereign nations. Now, any Native person who has ever spoken about treaty rights has repeated those two points over and over and over and over again, and time after time after time after time, it falls on deaf ears. You are not sovereign nations. Treaties with American Indians fall under another class of law. We can break treaties with Native nations and not be accountable for it. This is what we hear over and over and over again. In fact, we hear exactly what Neil Gorsuch wrote in the majority opinion in 2020 in McGirt. We never get told what he wrote in the dissenting opinion in Arizona versus New Mexico, Navajo Nation. So again, I did a little research. I didn't have to go very far. I wanted to know what is the legal difference in binding law between a majority and a dissenting opinion? Does the dissenting opinion have any weight when it comes to binding law? And what I found, and this is from the Congressional Research Service, the Supreme Court genuinely adjudicates by majority rule. Whenever legal positions garner a majority of votes in favor of its legal position, prevails, and the majority's ruling of in that case becomes binding precedent in subsequent cases. I'll put these links into the chat in just a moment. At the Cornell Law School, regarding dissenting opinions, they write, unlike majority opinions and similar to concurring opinions, dissenting opinions are not binding at all, are not binding law, and therefore future cases are not obligated to follow them. Nonetheless, dissenting opinions preserve minority opinions on contested legal issues and contribute to the public debate of these issues. So Neil Gorsuch, who is the best legal mind regarding Indian law on the Supreme Court, understands the law, understands the history, is willing to school his fellow justices in their ignorance of what they don't know and understand, at the end of the day, still bends the law to his nation's white Christian, male, exceptional doctrines. When he writes and his opinion is not binding, he says, yeah, under our constitution, all treaties are the supreme law of the land, and a treaty is essentially a contract between two sovereign nations. When his words are binding, he says this court long ago held that the legislature wields significant constitutional authority when it comes to tribal relations, possessing even the authority to breach its own contracts and treaties. This is infuriating, right? Imagine if we go back to this class where Brett Kavanaugh, the first-year law student who was arrogant and thought he could understand American Indian law by reading a coloring book he got in the fourth grade, gets schooled by the professor 
and says, let me tell you, Brett, what the Constitution says about treaties. Let me tell you, Brett, how treaties are made and who they're involved with. Let me tell you the history went on beyond behind this treaty. Let me tell you all these things. And then at the back of the class, there's a Native student, maybe even several, who raise their hand and say, Mr. Gorsuch, we've been writing that in all of our responses, and we've been including that in all of our essays, and we're still failing the class. Why, when we make the same argument you make, are we failing the class? And he says, because this class is merely about debate and we're not dealing with binding law. And that's what's infuriating about this, right? The natives are like, we, we've been arguing this every time we bring this up and we fail every time. And he says, because you stated like it's binding law and it's not. This is merely debate. And it's infuriating because he knows the answer. He knows what the Constitution says. He knows what the history is. He understands these things. And he still writes, this court does not, under, does not hold the Congress accountable, right? So here he says that, yes, the court's job is to, it's a place where tribes can go so that they can have an advocate for their treaty rights. And the problem is, is when it's binding law, the opinion from both sides of the aisle is you have no rights. The only rights you have are the rights we allow you to have. We state that you have. And even if our Constitution says this, we can get around that by saying these things and doing these other things and so on and so forth. And this is what's infuriating to me. Because Neil Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch, knows what he's doing, right? Brett Kavanaugh is ignorant. He's, he's ignorant. And, yeah. But Justice Gorsuch knows what he's doing. And that's when, just like the same thing with Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 2005. United Indian Nation versus the city of Sheryl, New York, where she makes the same white supremacist argument that the court's been making for centuries. And this is what is so frustrating. So anyway, I thought it was interesting. So the question we need to ask, right, is then, so where do we go from here? What are we supposed to do? And... At the end of his argument, Justice Gorsuch, he wrote this. Let me go back to it. He said, where did the Navajo go from here? To date their efforts to find out 
what water rights the United States holds to them have produced an experience similar to any American who has spent time with the Department of Motor Vehicles. The Navajos had waited patiently for someone, anyone to help them, only to be told repeatedly that they had been standing in the long in the wrong line and must go somewhere else to have their needs met. It literally states this is the experience. And the, the problem is this, we've stood in front of Republican lines and Democratic lines. We've stood in front of left-leaning majorities and right-leaning majorities. And when their opinions aren't binding, they occasionally throw us a bone. But when their opinions are binding, they both absolutely agree, which is we have no rights. So those are my thoughts, my relatives, about the case. These are the things I'm thinking about, and these are the things that I find very infuriating. Because it really is hard. Where, where do we go from here? What do we do? And I, right, this is why... I ran for president in 2020. Neither the left nor the right have any interest. And yes, Neil Gorsuch is from the right, but every single one of the liberal judges sided with him and signed on to his dissenting opinion. He spoke for them. And so th this is why I'm, I'm adamant Right, we have to address these things at a foundational level. Just stacking the court for one way or the other isn't going to fix it. Right, we have a constitution that 51 gender specific male pronouns never mentions women, excludes natives, counts Africans as three fifths of a person, keeps enslavement legal in our criminal justice system. It's no wonder why the two sides agree when it comes to binding law. And when it's debate and opinion, they may have different opinions, but when it comes to binding law, the Constitution states these people have no right. So we have to change that. We have to address it at the constitutional level. I hope this is helpful, my relatives. I want to look through some of the notes here. Appreciate the comments that are being made. Steve Wilson, there's the crux of the matter, right? You only have rights when we say you can have them and when we specifically say what they are. Yeah, this is the problem. That's the bipartisan opinion on both sides of the aisle. The only rights you have are the rights we allow you to have. And whenever we want to break them, we can break them. It doesn't matter. Anyway, I hope this has been a helpful exercise for you, my relatives. I hope that you are able to uh, use this to educate people in your circles. Please share this video. Please post comments even after the video is over and, and like it. Um, it helps increase its, its space in the algorithm. If you want to read more about some of the stuff, if you haven't heard me speak on these issues before, um, I invite you. Oh, and let me give you some of the links that I have here. I want to include some of the links. So the um, 
the Congressional Research Service, the office that stated what the the purpose of the dissent of the majority opinion. Let me put this link in the chat right now. And then the part from Cornell Law School about dissenting opinions. I'm going to put that article into the chat right now. And uh, of course, if you want to read more about the doctrine of discovery and its influence on the on its ongoing dehumanizing influence in the United States, both in our legal system and our society and in our churches, I welcome you to purchase a signed copy of my book, Unsettling Truths. And if you would like to go with me uh, deeper into some of these topics and to join me on my Patreon site, I welcome you to consider subscribing to my Patreon. But I am doing everything I can, my relatives, to educate our nation on these things, to get these things in the forefront, to keep talking about these things. I thank you for your willingness to join me in these conversations. Thank you for sitting down with me for a cup of coffee this morning. I hope your cup of coffee is as good as mine is. And now I have to head out because I have a physical therapy appointment. And I'm still working on uh, healing my right, my left hip after my hip replacement surgery a couple, a few months ago. But uh, that recovery is going well. So walk in beauty, my relatives. Hope you have a great day. And may we all learn how to walk in beauty together. Huck on that.